this twice, twice. It is disingenuous. Sports, sports, high respected. The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Welcome to the next in a series of uh, interview discussions with a bunch of people from the Queensland Greens. This is going to be part three. We've already had a good chat with Liam and Max in part one and two of this, which has been posted on the, the Floodcast podcast. And we've got a bunch of different people here today. Uh, we have Mel, Declan and Eva from the, the Queensland Greens. And I think this one, maybe we look at like drilling down a bit more concretely on a lot of the the work that uh, you, you guys do up there and and how you do it and what sort of frames the way uh, you do it I mean if you've people have listened to part one and two we sort of looked a lot at um, I guess larger political framework for a lot of the, a lot of this stuff is yeah, essentially um, the nature of the political classes as not just I guess, something people are alienated from, but something where the political class actually doesn't have their interests at heart and actually is advocating and pushing things that are hostile to people's interests. And then um, some of you know the ways uh, the, the Queensland Greens have been trying to, <clears throat> uh, to counter that. And I guess we want to look really at the origins of this and some of how this has played out and some of the lessons you've learned and how it's changed over the times. Uh, so to get us started, and as I was saying, I feel slightly awkward. I feel this is a little bit hokey. Because I've been in meetings where I find this awkward when people, when I have to answer this question. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you could each just maybe, you know, say who you are and describe your role, and also describe how I guess how you first came to be involved in this project. I don't know who wants to who wants to start. I'll jump in. Um, my name's Mel. So at the moment, I work for Max um, in the federal office as his chief of staff. Um, and before that, I worked on his campaign with Liam and Eva that are on here as well. Um, but I've only been involved with the Greens for not even three years yet. So um, still like in the grand scheme of things, quite new to it, but I think I took quite a deep dive <laughs> into uh, getting involved. Um, and so I actually came through the climate movement. Um, I was quite involved with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, did a lot of work around school strike for climate and lots of mentoring young people and um you know, stepping them up into various types of organising. Um, and I think I think I helped organise the first three strikes in Brisbane, which are like the yeah. three really, really big ones. I think we got up to 30,000 people out for one of them, which was like a cool, fun time and felt really good and powerful at the time. But, um, you know, yeah. that one really happened, you know. Um, and so... I was I started feeling quite disillusioned with the um with the climate movement as a whole um for a bunch of different reasons but I guess the key one is just like we weren't actually winning anything and um I think the nature of NGOs insists that you're winning something and like create a narrative as to why you are winning when all your that kind of I just took a big step back and didn't want to get involved in any type of movement work again yep. I was just a bit done um and if it wasn't for the pestering of someone very involved in the greens I probably wouldn't have <laughs> been very persistent I'll give yep. that to Christian very persistent hassled me into it um and I got involved in John O'Sree's re-election campaign at the start of 2020 wasn't a member didn't want to be a member like was just like I've just 
doing this to get Christian off my back. <laughs> um, and like, was like, oh, our door knocking's actually, why isn't everyone door knocking all of the time? Greens, and then I have just been a diehard Greens member ever since. So shout out to Christian for getting me oh. in. <laughs> Yeah, I, reckon, I mean, I can relate to some of that. And I reckon a lot of anyone who's been involved in movements in, in recent years can probably relate to at least the first part of what you're you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the second part is <laughs> quite, you know, like part of the point of, of doing this is to encourage people like me to get back involved <laughs> in things. Um, uh, who wants to go next? I'm happy to go. Um, my work in the Greens um, has been um, as a campaign organiser. I'm currently working with um, Mel in the Griffith office as well, um, but have taken on sort of various campaign roles, been involved for maybe, gosh, four and a half years now, something like that, or close to. Um, The campaigns that I've been part of, um, the first campaign that got me involved was Max's first run at um, Griffith um, back in 2018, 2019. Um, and since then, I've worked on Amy McMahon's um, campaign in 2020 and Max's campaign, uh, successful campaign in 2022. Um, how and, I, and Amy McMahon, that, that was the first time she won? Yeah, that was her successful campaign in, in 2020. Um, yeah, yeah the, the second campaign. Um, and, yeah, as, as to how I got involved, I don't come from a particularly, I suppose, political background. My um, parents, um, you know, didn't really vote, um, didn't have much sort of trust in the political system. Uh, and you know, I, I knew, um, you know, as I sort of began to come into my identity, I suppose, as a young adult that, um, you know, social justice was something that I was interested in. And I went to uni to kind of begin to explore that, um, but um, didn't really have a connection to electoral politics in any way um, at all really beyond just voting greens. Um, and then actually my um, ex-partner um, flagged with me that there was this um, Griffith campaign introduction event um, just around the corner from our house um, where we were renting at the time. Um, yeah. And you know, I was like, oh, sure, yeah, right, I'll go along. Like, wasn't particularly invested. Um, ended up getting there and it was um, Max and Liam <laughs> presenting a a bit of a strategy pitch for why um, why folks should get involved as volunteers. Um, and yeah, ended up signing up to volunteer. <laughs> really just, um, I suppose, um, you know, their pitch really landed with me and, and it seemed like something really practical that I could um, contribute towards. Um, you know, I ended up signing up to do some sort of background admin work on the campaign because I thought, you know, there was no way you would ever go get me knocking on a stranger's door. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm a little bit of a shy person naturally and so I thought that was totally, you know, out of the realm of possibility. But, you know, flash forward six months later, um, I had been hired as a um, volunteer coordinator, was, um, you know, taking volunteers out on their first door knocks, door knocking every weekend. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of a whirlwind and, yeah, since then I've been, um, yeah, like Mel, got thrown in the deep end. Yeah, I, I'm sure a lot of people could also relate to the thing of it being a very confronting thing. Um, I remember Max and Liam both saying before people generally very sceptical of or un, or nervous or worried about door knocking and then come away uh, addicted to it, I think was their their their, um, their phrase. So that's, that is very interesting. Uh, Declan, do you want to 
Absolutely. I, th I think um, Liam thought I'd be good in this because I've had a slightly different experience to these two. Um, I've done a little bit of work on campaigns, but mostly yeah. I've been uh, a, a more engaged volunteer than the average. Um, I first got involved um, probably via urban politics. I'd been studying urban planning in Melbourne for a while and um, just like had a, you know, got depression and fucked off back home to Brisbane. And one of the things that I've been reading about was like some of David Harvey's right to the city kind of politics. And there was this right to the city group that was um, kicking around in Brisbane after Jono's election campaign. Um, so some people in his office were were pretty formative in organising an ongoing um, non-electoral right to the city group. Uh, so I got involved in that and we participated in participated in a few different things. Um, like a lot of those kind of left groups, it felt really, really exciting at times, but then um, kind of relatively suddenly died in the arse. Um, and at around the time it was Mann's first state election campaign was kicking off and um, Liam... Liam had a good chat with me at one point about like, well, you know, if we can, the more offices we can win, the more kind of resources can continue to be like funneled from these kind of electoral campaigns into like into sustaining these kind of non-electoral vehicles, which, which was really compelling to me at the time. Um, I'd always been quite, I, like one of my earlier jobs was working with the Wilderness Society as like one of the the chuggers, like one of the, the street charity fundraisers. Um, so the idea of like talking to people wasn't something that was that new to me. And I've always been really drawn to that sort of thing. I really like talking to a wide range of people about what they reckon. So I found it really, really liberating, um, going and door knocking without, with being able to have a conversation more or less I wanted without having this, like this, this need, this urge to try and like get someone to commit some sort of financial commitment at the end of it, rather than like actually just having a chat about where even if they don't end up voting green at the end, we still get quite a lot out of just having a good chat about, you know, what someone thinks and and why they think it and what sorts of like values and politics are informing the way they think about society and what, where they understand their interests. So I got, yeah, after after door knocking a little bit, I, I was pretty, pretty keen. So I've been involved since Amy McMahon's first campaign. What was that, 2016? Um, so I've been a, around for a little while now. Um, mostly as, as an engaged volunteer. Okay, yeah, cool. I think um, that gives a, you know, quite a good overview. In fact, it's, you know, touching on, I guess, some of the, some of the, some of the things we actually want to go through in those, in all those, those comments, like that, that question of, you know, the, the limits of these campaigns and the way a political focus, like with the, with the Greens has given more ongoing, more ongoing, uh, focus to those things, I'd be interested to try and figure out, because this is quite, um, there's not really anywhere else I see in Australia doing politics quite like you you are up up there, including um, in the Greens. I don't really see the New South Wales, and I don't, I'm not trying to invite, you know, commentary on the rest of rest of the Greens, just to note that it is quite unique. So I'd be interested to try and get a sense of how this came about in, in Brisbane, I mean, what really are the origins of this approach or this current or whatever exactly you want to you you want to call it? I, I've thought about this quite a lot. Um, I think there's 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 several factors that I think are really critical in producing it. Uh, firstly, I would say that um, part of what why it's the Greens is that Labor is the the 
the kind of baseline government in Queensland. You know, we've had a Labor government almost since I was born. I'm 33. I think there's been one term where Labor hasn't been the state government. So the idea that the Labor Party would be a vehicle to to enacting change just wouldn't occur to people in the same way. Um, so I think that's that's a pretty critical factor. I think another one is that we don't have a state upper house. Um, if we had a state upper house, I think a party like the Greens would win, be able to win a few kind of state upper house um, positions and then you'd have these kind of like, you know, state level senators and their officers, which would be able to direct quite a lot of power within a party um, and kind of steer, steer the party's course in a particular way. And because because of those two factors at least, um, and at around the time that it was kicking off some of the energy and excitement around um, Cerizia, around Podemos, and around the the Bernie and the um, the Corbyn kind of moments in in the UK meant that there was a an interest in electoral p- politics and Greens as a party were one that uh, a kind of accidental entryism could occur in, um, and that there weren't these kind of institutional blockages to taking a more a more kind of explicitly radical politics in it, um, and I think those are kind of some of the factors that that help produce it here in Brisbane, um, as well as as a, a really significant, I think there was a really strong focus on urban politics at the start. And I think being able to door knock and talk about what's happening in the city has been really essential for a long time. And that wouldn't have happened without a a really significant um, uh, like property boom happening in, in the inner city of, of all Australian cities, but in Brisbane particularly at that time. So I think they're some of the the really important things that were happening that made, made it possible to, to occur in the way it did rather than than s- some other states. Yeah, I think the the like lack of an upper house is a really, really key component because I've been thinking about this in context of like federal campaigns in other green states and the priorities they make um, yeah, between their lower house and upper house and sometimes the assumption that it's, it's much easier to win a Senate seat so we should go for the Senate seat. Um, where we never had that option um, for for Queensland. And I think the other interesting part about Brisbane is our like local council. Our council operates pretty much like the state government with the same type of budget. And so the like we could develop the exact same type of campaign through multiple levels of government and just keep rolling on one from the other. Um, and so, yeah, I think actually, yeah, just popped into my head, like the Brisbane City Council campaigns operate just like a state campaign as well. Um, both are like lower house based. Um, so I think that's a super, super key point. Yeah. Yeah. I might just quickly add, I think um, Declan and Mel have covered a lot of it, but um, a, a lot of what we do when we're, you know, talking to people at the door or, um, you know, building from campaign to campaign, I feel like is, um, you know, raising people's expectations of what's possible. And I think there's something um, interesting and maybe perhaps instructive about the fact that um, a lot of these campaigns on the south side of Brisbane, um, well, all of them were, um, you know, kicked off with the um, 2016 run in the Gabba um, when Jono Shriranganathan was um, elected as the first um, elected Greens rep in Queensland. I, I think in a way there's maybe an argument that um, it seems maybe a little bit more possible for the Greens to win at the local level than, you know, um, state and federal. And obviously we've disproven that to be the case now. But, um, yeah, perhaps there's something interesting there around the fact that um, it, it sort of started local and, and grew from there. I forgot to actually like make explicitly why I thought not having a state upper house was such a big part of it. And and I, I felt like I should just say it, like, very explicitly. It's just instead of being able to 
to potentially win by appealing to the interests of a certain percentage of the, of the electorate, you know, whether it's, you know, I think, I think the Greens historically have talked a lot about like this kind of university educated, comfortable class who vote for moral reasons based on climate change or refugees, but to actually win, we, do, we definitionally needed to win the majority you know, like a like a substantial majority of people's interests, and I think that was a big part of what spurred like spurred our like universalist kind of politics. Yeah, that, that that's no, that, that's a really interesting point. The the lack of the the upper house and also the nature of the the Brisbane council. So I mean, it start, sounds like that you know Jonathan Street campaign, which was what two thousand and fifteen or something like that, or two thousand and sixteen, um, helped really kick it off. I imagine it started. Um, I mean, obviously, Queensland Greens is an entire state, and then Brisbane's a lot of different things. Was there a particular place where where it started, um, and has it sort of spread like this approach? Has it, or how has it sort of spread to others in in the in the Queensland Greens? I think I can speak to where it started in West End best because that's um, I grew up in West End, and when I returned home, that's where. Um, Jonathan Sengaratham had had his had his win, and there was an infrastructure there. Um, so I think it's it started in West End, which again I think is is like a particular location that would, would was important to why it started. All the unions have their offices there, a lot of the NGOs have their offices there. So I think there's a, a array of organising talent who've like slipped out of the interest of of those sorts of like slipped out of the orbit of those institutions, um, but with still an interest in, in radical politics, as well as it going through a really serious kind of um, uh, redevelopment boom around that time as well. And I think that others will be able to speak better to how it spread. Yeah, I, I think it's spreading reasonably well. Um, I think Queensland as a whole shares a really good universalist type of politics that we've, I, I suppose this can like carried um and in terms of like campaigning style i i would say that the the rest of the state is eager to um you know copy that and use what we've done here um part of my role in the 2020 state campaign was training up um the strategic seats in a new layer outside of the inner city to do door knocking and do voter contact um but also like training campaigners in townsville and lots of different places around the state um and I think like you can definitely we can definitely train people in, in door knocking styles, but there's also that need for people to just like eat, deeply invest in where they are, because the style that works in in Brisbane might not like the politics translate, but the style of door knocking, the style of campaigning might need to be shifted and tweaked si- slightly. Um, so it needs to be like a cross pollination, but then like deep investment in that place as well. And I think something that is really helping with that, that moving out campaigning and moving out skills and sharing skills um, has been through some of the work that our electoral officers are doing at the moment. We're doing a lot of door knocking around housing, um, from Labor's housing bill. And you might have already talked about this with Max or will be in the future. Um, but we've just we've been going out to a bunch of different branches in out of suburban Brisbane um, and training folks in door knocking and giving them those skills, um, which will just feed into better um, campaigns in the future. So I think it's spreading, but it's spreading it's spreading as fast as it can, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I just have something really quick to add to that, which is um, I think, you know, on one hand, because, um, yeah, like uh, I've been doing some of these sort of like um, further out southeast Queensland um, door knocks around the housing as well. Um, and, you know, on one hand there's, um, you know, you can, you can sort of, um, I suppose, instruct people in the approach or, 
um, you know, give people the tools um, and, and the resources. Um, there's that and that that needs to happen. But then one thing that I um, have found really gratifying to see is actually um, when you uh, are able to show not tell and actually when those um, campaigners or those first time door knockers actually go out into their communities um, and have these conversations and then come back for the debrief at the end and you can just see how exhilarated people are by it. I think Mel will agree, you know, this is something we saw quite recently with those housing door knocks. Um, and just, I think that feeling of, um, you know, being able to connect with people directly one-on-one um, and knowing that the politics is landing is just a real confidence building moment for campaigners around the state. And that's always really exciting for me to see. And I think that um, that's really the thing that I hope will, um, yeah, sort of encourage those um, other campaigns around the state to keep building um, that capacity um, and have more of those conversations. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering in terms of um, where this approach came from, and obviously it's a lot of finding it works so you, you want to keep doing it and, and deepening it. But I'm interested in either was it's just, I mean, I mean, Declan mentioned some examples around you know, the world at the time when he was getting involved. I'm wondering, are there, are there points of references or things that have inspired or you've looked to either from Australia or around the world in terms of experiences or ideas that are being practiced elsewhere that have played a role in formulating this approach uh, in Brisbane? Uh, I think, like, for me, a lot of my, like, I studied environmental management at uni, and so a lot of my, what shaped a lot of my formative political ideas um, is not what I do now. And so I have a lot of, um, I know, I have a lot of knowledge about the environment movement in Australia and how that shapes certain things that we do I think differs from a um and yeah, I I have wasn't around in the early days of the 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 Greens in Brisbane, so Declan can probably speak better to this than I can. Um, but I think like door knocking has just been a tried and true method of campaigning for so so long, uh, like across the US and the UK. But I think that the key difference for us is it's not a voter identification style of campaigning. It's like we're deliberately going out to change people's minds and deliberately going out to not even change people's minds, but like show them that their values align with ours. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a key difference in, and, and even a key difference in styles of door knocking that's used in Australia as well. Um, and it's really, yeah, it's really easy to say you're going to go door knock, but it's, they mean very different things. Um, yeah, that wasn't a very thorough answer of like, <laughs> it's more of an answer of what doesn't shape our approach. <laughs> I think the, the difficult thing is that um, that I really don't think there is anyone doing something similar to what we're doing around the world, um, which isn't to say that the, no one else around the world is doing something that works, but there's like the specific sets of things that kind of make what we're doing, make make how we do things appropriate to here. Um, Max talks about um, reading Inventing the Future by um, Srinsek and Williams as, and then being like, well, what if we just tried implementing that? And I think that was that was part of it. So I think there's there's been some influence from the, the British left um, and and the Italian left. You know, uh, Gramsci is an, a very important figure for, for Max and as one of a, the important leaders of that movement. But I think... I think the way we're door knocking, I think it emerged very organically from what we're doing. Um, and Mel's point about the like compulsory compulsory voting in Australia is, is really when identify supporters and then get them out, get out the vote. 
Um, and there's there would be no point doing that in Australia. But a lot of Australian, like unions, when they import unions in the Labor Party, when they import U US kind of organizing tactics and skills, do actually just import that kind of like identify like issue voter identification and get out the vote kind of tactics, which is completely inappropriate to a setting where people will actually go to vote anyway. Um, so I think that's that's an important one. But I think I think really we we have developed it um, through starting very small. And, you know, the, it, the way we door knock and the way we the way we train in particular has changed. It is something that I see through every campaign. We just get slightly better at it, slightly better at it. But we're, I, I do think we're doing our own thing. Um, I can't really think of another example, which is which is comparable. And I, I think, so. To just to add to that, I think like a key lesson I had coming out of the environment movement is like the environment movement had some like very big successes in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And now today they just keep following the exact same tactics and styles that previously won without acknowledging the fact that the political climate we're living in is different. And a different political climate means you need to try new tactics and new styles. And so I think that like, yeah, Declan alluded to this, like what we're doing now is just different to things that have been done before because we're in a different political circumstance yeah. and we need to try new things. And I think that's maybe my gripe with like, um, you know, left movements in general is like try new shit, like try new things and see what sticks to the wall and then keep doing that thing um, and don't just do what might have worked previously 20 years ago in a totally different climate. Do you have anything to add on that? Even? Oh, um, not really. Just to say that, like, I suppose um, uh, for me, like, my um, sort of experience of getting into organising has kind of been, um, yeah, do doing the practical stuff work, uh, first, doing the trial and error and just, you know, making mistakes, figuring it out, um, you know, learning from, you know, the brilliant mentors that, um, you know, had um, been, you know, working on these campaigns around Brisbane um, you know, for, you know, the few years uh, before me as well. Um, but also, you know, looking to um, stuff from, you know, Jane McAlevey um, and the 2016 um, Bernie campaign as well. Um, there's a book I really love about organising. Uh, it's called Rules for Revolutionaries, um, uh, How Big Organising Can Change Everything. Um, and that was something that I, I think I read perhaps alongside while I was working on the 2020 um, campaign for Amy and um, I think there's definitely elements um, that we can pick up on like um, um, particular approaches and ways of organizing volunteers and um, uh, reaching people that um, there's similarities there but at the same time I don't think it's such that there was you know one particular theory and I agree with Declan there wasn't one particular theory that was necessarily picked up and ran with it was you know a combination of all these elements um, and along with a lot of I suppose trial and error and refinement along the way and being willing to acknowledge when things aren't working. I think that's like a really underrated um, aspect of our campaigns and, um, you know, sort of taking, I suppose, the ego out of it in a lot of, a lot of ways and just looking at, well, you know, did, did that work? Did that not work? You know, do we need to reorient? Do we need to tweak this approach? Um, um, I think is part of what's helped refine our door knocking to where it is now. Yeah, I think I think one of the the really good things about electoral organizing is is you've got a really like clear kind of um uh diagnostic criteria. This is like, well, did, like how many votes did you win at this election? How many votes did you win at the next election? Like it's really it's really easy to compare various strategies, techniques. Um 
you know, even within like, you know, the results at this booth versus that booth. And I think a big problem on the left in general is that there hasn't been a clear criteria through which to evaluate this, whether a, an action has been successful or not. So like when Mel's talking about the the really big like school strike, the climate things, well, is the criteria for success how many people we got there? Is the criteria for success how it felt for the people who were there? Or was the criteria for success any like, like what sort of, how do we actually tell if what we did was good or not? Like, and because of the way electoral, like electoral systems work is the way you can tell if you did any good or not is if you won or not. And that's, I think the other really important factor that, that these, um, Mel and Eva's kind of responses helped me kind of realize I wanted to say was, um, I think, you know, when we're talking about the environment movement, we're talking about like the, the other left movements through, throughout history is, is that they weren't happening in this moment of neoliberal alienation, um, uh, you know, Max will talk all the time about like how strong civil society institutions were before, um, you know, be before, you know, Hawke and Keating got of the, the Australian labor movement, for example. But door knocking is really a successful in the context of people, people losing access to civil society institutions and re retreating to the alienated family home in, in the suburbs. And by going to the door and talking to people face to face about their experience of that alienation, about their experience of that society, that's that's where an effective po politics has kind of emerged from. But I don't think there's been enough of attempt on the left in general to acknowledge that the acknowledge that the form of organizing is different now in in this kind of moment of neoliberal hegemony than it is when we had strong civil institutions where there was a much more of a context between between capital and the working class yeah that's I and mean, all that's really interesting and particularly the points i think which we might get back into like about what's unique about what you do because it's there is door knocking and door knocking anyone can door knock um, and other political parties door knock, other, you know, NGOs uh, door knock, but there's clearly a different way uh, that you guys do it up there. And I, I'd be interested uh, in your thoughts on what you think, not necessarily just, I mean, door knocking is sort of the form, but I guess more generally what you see actually, given you're saying that what you see is you're doing is quite unique, even globally. Um, your thoughts on what it is that actually sets your approach apart, apart from others, whether it's around the world, mainstream parties here, or even others on the left. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. Um, I think there's a few factors, um, things that we're doing that, you know, the Labor Party's not doing and, you know, the, the far left um, protest groups and things aren't doing as well. And I think um, they're sort of interesting to reflect on. Um, I think we've already touched on it a little bit, but this idea that um, the camp, the way the campaign is communicating um, understands that most voters are very, very disconnected from politics. Um, I think that beginning with that acknowledgement and starting there um, is a huge part of it. The focus on like materiality, so material issues that um, impact people's lives that they, um, you know, can feel and sort of see around them. Going, going for you know, particular um, campaign messages that are um, broadly popular. <laughs> so things that people um, actually want to happen and, and things that might even seem like, you know, common sense and, and people might even be wondering why, you know, why is this not already happened? Why aren't politicians talking about this? Um, and really clearly like differentiating ourselves from Labor on those issues and policy areas as well. Um, so, you know, not just you know, taking a policy that Labor might be running with and just doing a, you know, slightly tweaked, better version of that. But actually, um, you know, this is a clear distinction. We're offering something different and better. 
Um, and a really big one as well, using language that um, people actually understand and identify with. Um, so cutting out a lot of that, um, you know, lefty jargon um, and actually speaking in the language of, um, you know, the people that we are going to talk to at the door because, you know, we're there um, to try help break down that barrier between politics and, you know, two strangers having a conversation. Uh, how do we break down people's um, disconnection and alienation from politics? And you're not going to do that if you're using the language of political people, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and so I think those are things that I'm not really seeing anyone else doing. And I think they all um, make quite a bit of sense. And <laughs> um, I suppose um, if we keep doing those things um, and refining those things, um, hopefully that that will continue to to land because I feel like um, that's that's what it's doing so far. Yeah, Eva, I think you pretty much covered it all. Um, I think the only, um, the only other thing I had to add in is, um, and we've touched on it a few times already, is just like losing the moralism of what we're doing. And like when we train new door knockers, we have this phrase of like meet people where they're at. Um, and finding common ground with people. And I think I've I've door knocked for like climate NGOs before. Um, not a good time, really, really bad time. And the reason is that they take this moralistic attitude to the door of like, well, why don't you care about this issue? You should care about this issue with the implication that you're a bad person if you don't care about trees getting knocked down. Um but instead, we, we, everyone has stuff that they care about and it's our job to go find what that is and then relate it to our style of politics. Um, and the vast, vast majority of people will relate to our politics in some way. Um, and, and I think the other crucial aspect is accepting that not everyone's going to agree with you on everything. Um, and actually, you just need to get them to agree with us on like nearly a majority of things. Um, and I think that parts of leftism where it's like, unless you're on the same page as me 100% of the time on 100% of the issues, we can't work together. When actually when, when you're collectively, when you're part of a collective, there are going to be disagreements that you have. Um, there's going to be points where you just will not see eye to eye, but you're, you're still comrades and you still need to work together um, because you can you can win together. And so I think an acceptance of that an acceptance that people are going to say, like, you'll talk to anti-abortionists on the door and you can still win their vote for the Greens. It's hard, but you can do it um, because there is a bigger, more broad political agreement with that person, usually based in class. Um, yeah. Declan, did you have anything to throw in? Um, I think a little bit about uh, depth oh. versus, like, break. Like, I think we did a little bit of work um just like phone calls helping out the Corbyn campaign yeah. at one point. And what really struck me was that one of the differences between the way we do things and the way that they were doing things there, yeah. even though ostensibly very similar, was that they cracked scale in a way that we're not close to doing. Like the way that the various WhatsApp groups that Momentum were using to get people out door knocking at, at just like this, like this sheer number of people is just, you know, mind boggling really. It would be amazing to be able to organise that well. But what I was really surprised by was how, they managed to crack scale without actually doing a very good job of just kind of the nitty gritty. I mean, like the, the conversation script that we were using was obviously really bad. Like it just didn't work very well. You didn't, you didn't set things up in a way that was useful for people. So I think in some ways, Australia hasn't had the same kind of political moment that other places did. So this kind of like left movement didn't move, didn't have to, didn't take up in the same way in Australia. So we've done similar things, but without having a, 
without it kind of taking off and catching fire in that way, which meant that we've actually really had to refine what we're doing over a few years in terms of just the the bare bones of like, well, actually, how do you structure a conversation? Like, you know, how do you say, how do you introduce yourself? How do you start like moving this conversation onto, you know, what sorts of like, how do you find out what someone's actually interested in? What sorts of things are going to decide their vote? What sorts of things are going to inform the way they think about the politics in the world? And how do you actually like then connect that to some sort of like, like their material interests and what sorts of things the Greens are doing that actually correspond to their material interests. It's a very like deliberate, like structured conversation that we've got right over probably five or six years before we really had it figured out. The other kind of campaigns, even if they're doing similar stuff, maybe it's because the conditions in their societies are different. They've got really big and had those conversations at the scale of 200, 300,000 people, you know, a week while we're still only doing it with, you know, a few thousand, but we're doing it properly. I think, that that's a factor. Mm, I think it'd be really interesting to see like how, um, you know, as our campaigns grow and, you know, um, we have campaigns, um, you know, Griffith sites campaigns running in, you know, dozens of seats across the country or more, like um, maintaining that sort of, um, yeah, depth um, to the conversations, Declan. Because I think there's a term that um, I've, I've heard used, I think, in a US context um, of like deep organising, um, and I, we don't really use that to sort of frame the way we do things, but um, I think there is something to that, um, like this idea of having a conversation that, um, you know, is a lot more meaningful than, you know, just the standard, um, you know, political campaign door knock script where you, you know, identify someone's, you know, voting intention and then just throw a few policies at them, leave them with a flyer and wave goodbye. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's my hope that we can, you know, keep, the campaigns um, having both that um, depth and breadth as well. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what happens with that. And I think it's what you said before, Eva, about like constantly interrogating if what we're doing is actually working and like not having an ego around that. And I mean, even in the latest Griffith campaign, we were still changing the way we have conversations and still criticizing what we're doing and still thinking about what we're doing um, to the point where we like introduced a new type of door knocking called life knocking. Um, and so I think that's probably the key part that in, um, underpins all of these things is constant criti- criticizing of what we're doing and it constantly being critical of our approach um, and being flexible to change it when needed um, because political conditions will change in five to ten years and we'll need to respond differently to those things as well. Yeah, and marrying that, though, with, like, when we know it is working, <laughs> mm. really back Staying with it. <laughs> sell that. Um um, to volunteers in such a way that, you know, they're bought in and, you know, they're seeing that it's working as well and that we're, um, you know, really backing our strategy because there, there are people, um, you know, there will continue to be people, you know, political analysts like whoever else um, telling us that our, theory, um, you know, that our approach doesn't work, cannot work, will never possibly work. So I think it's a really interesting balance between like knowing to back that our strategy works and that it will see us through while at the same time uh, sort of a- analysing um, if it's continually. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how we've quite managed to strike that balance, but it feels like it, it has been um, a balance. And I think something that um, campaigns, I guess, should should keep in mind is how to marry those two things. Well, yeah, I think it's like only we're allowed to criticise ourselves, <laughs> you know, like like yeah, we know what it. our strategy is. We criticise, we do the self-reflection because there's always going to be people on the external saying, you'll never win this seat and this will never happen. And it's the people who are on the ground doing the work that that know it and can back that. Totally. That 
is a really good discussion and it kind of already the next question I had, I think, is reasonably well answered, which was kind of about what are the key principles behind how you actually approach um, door knocking and approach approach people. So I guess maybe to actually break it down a bit more, because um, you're using terms like you know universalism, um, looking at yeah you know, people's you know, talking to people where they're at, their material interests. I wonder if you give examples of what that actually means and how that actually formula how that plays out when you door knock and also formulate your political platform that you that you take to people yeah i can jump in oh declan you go no you go either please <laughs> um yeah i mean th this is a good question and it's something that um you know is one of the first things that um you know a volunteer may ask you know at a campaign introductory session is you know we, we might introduce these you know terms around things like universal and universalism for example and then um we we want to break that down and, and explain to um you know, new volunteers who want to go door knocking, like um, what does that um, actually mean and, and how does that correspond to the way that we door knock? Uh, and I think a really good example from the federal election is um, dental into Medicare. Um, this, um, you know, idea that, um, you know, healthcare is a human right that we should all have access to. You know, we live in a wealthy country. Um, healthcare should be um, free for everyone. Um, and, you know, Medicare is, um, you know, obviously something that sort of, I suppose, harkens back to maybe a time when perhaps governments were a little bit more interested in, um, you know, introducing programs that benefit everybody rather than, um, you know, means tested programs that we're all very familiar with um, at the moment. And I think, um, I guess, um, opening up the scope of what's possible is a huge part of um, winning somebody over to our side or um, convincing them that throwing a vote to the Greens this election is something that might be worthwhile to do. And um, I think universalism is something that really makes sense to people, like this idea that um, everybody should have access to the basic things, you know, as Max always says, you know, the basics that we all need to have a good life. Um, and, you know, the thing about... Um, a universal healthcare program like Medicare is that everybody has access to it and that makes it a lot harder for, you know, future governments to roll back um, programs, whereas when things are introduced um, on a means-tested basis, um, it's a lot easier then because, um, you know, future governments can say, oh, you know, we, we just we can't quite afford to, you know, help this small sliver of society anymore. Sorry, we're going to um, take that away whereas you know something like Medicare even though it has been chipped away at um, and um, you know dismantled a, a bit here and there um, we, we've still got it and we should actually not just be looking at defending it but actually expanding it and I think that's um, that's how I would um, I guess frame that when talking to a volunteer and actually how do we translate our campaign principles you know such as universalism into a pitch at the door as to why we should all be able to access dental care for free. Um, and sometimes um, even a little, little bit of a meta way, um, you would include that argument around universalism at the door with the voter. Usually people are already pretty on board with the idea of being able to go to the dentist for free. But once you start explaining why, you know, it should be um, made free for everybody under Medicare, um, people really get it. Um, just doesn't seem to the only people who don't seem to get it are, you know, the political class and um, the establishment parties, but everyone else is pretty on board from our experience. Um, in terms of like meeting people where they're at, 
um, so during the Griffith campaign, the, the 2022, we had um, we introduced this new style of door knocking called life knocking because um, we we're running in up against people who in previous campaigns, we had a lot of people who were very angry about politics. But this time we're running up against a lot of people who are really apathetic. And at least with angry people, that's still a relationship that they have to politics. It's a negative one, which is good. We can use that. But they have a relationship and they'll have a conversation about why they're pissed off. But when people are apathetic towards politics, there's no there's a disconnection. There's no relationship there. They don't see how politics is going to change their life. They just politics doesn't factor into their life in any way at all. Um, and so finding a way to overcome that type of apathy and that type of disconnect was really, really important. Um, and, and in a conversation of trying to overcome it is first not talking about, well, talking about political things, but not talking about them in a political way. Um, you know, asking someone if they're a renter, asking someone if they're studying at uni, how, how old their kids are, if they go to the local school. Education and healthcare and university are all political issues, but talking about them in that person's life and how that person experiences it and talking about that first and then relating it to our policies um, is a really effective way to go. And that's kind of, that's part of what I mean by meeting people where they're at, like finding out who they are, what's going on for them, and then relating that to a policy. And I think that in itself is really good political education for volunteers, well, for everyone, um, because you're actually (laughs) finding out what the problems are in people's lives and what the you know institutions that they're running up against and can't get access to the things that they need yeah Declan did you want to jump on in yeah I think what you said about um political education for the volunteer was kind of what where I started thinking about a response to this question as well because I think telling volunteers that that they're going to like they're going to change more from from doing this than any of the voters that they speak to is, isn't something we'd say, we'd say explicitly, but it is something that we say all the time, um, is that the way talking to strangers about their lives changes your orientation to politics a lot um, is, is, is really the key kind of thing. Um, I think in terms of like how, I think how we try and do it and why universalism and material interests are so important is, and, and how they kind of relate to the non-moralism as well, is that we try and talk to people we try and talk to volunteers and, and impress upon them that they're that the person they're talking to, just by virtue of having a door that you can walk up to and knock on, is almost definitionally not part of the the elite who's doing like a really who's doing really well out of Australian society at the moment. Um so even if they you know, even if they're doing relatively well, even if they like disagree with with the Greens um on on a, a set of really major issues, they're still at heart their interests like their material interests in terms of like what they could get out of Australian society probably are uh, do coincide with the interests of the majority of people in Australian society. So what you need to do is to find out is to find out what their interests are and what they what they're kind of experiencing as a frustration in their life, and then impress and then kind of frame that that particular thing in relation to the universal Australia, like whatever their idea of the universal Australian is. And say, well, look, actually, most people will be reason is because because you and I are definitionally not part of the people who are doing really well here. So that's how you can kind of get around some of these these moral disagreements. Because if someone's, you know, they, you know, they're really homophobic or something like this, well, it's like, well, look, I think it's neither here nor there. Like 
to be honest. What I'm talking about is this, like, this is how I talk to them. I'm like, look, I think it's neither here nor there. Like, I don't think that. But like, fundamentally, you and I have the same interest in, in finding that the services that we use and the lives that we get to live are fundamentally limited because the, the size of the pie in Australia is almost all of it is going to the very, very wealthy. So I think you can you can talk about that. I want to talk about the structure of society. Like, I think you should be free to do what you want. And I think they should be free to do what they want. But none, none of us are at the moment because because Gina Reinhardt owns, you know, more real estate than the rest of us combined or, or you know, whatever it is. It's not that. But I, and I think that's that's kind of how to pull back and, and start using this like universalism, non-moralism and materialism kind of as, as the holy trinity to be able to talk to anyone about their life. Yeah, yet again, you sort of, like, oh, this is probably a bit yeah. inevitable, but you're asking, you're sort of answering the, the next questions that I that I have, which is, I think it's very good, but also makes me wonder why, why did I waste my time writing all these things out? Um, but, yeah, no, I think that, that, that exact point was kind of going to be my next one, and I might return to it, but I might actually ask, with all these, these points, what you see is the difference or the advantage of this, and maybe I'll start with, I'll be particularly interested in everyone's views, but maybe Mel, as someone who's heavily involved in the climate strikes and things like that, what sets it apart compared to that? Because, it, I mean, it, it sort of strikes me that if you want to go out and talk to ordinary people, if you want to reach, if you want to use old left terms, reach the working class or whatever, knocking on people's doors and talking to people in that way seems a lot more effective than some of the the demonstrations, and I think demonstrations have a lot of weight, but as long as they are, my take on it would be, they need to be real, like they need to be an expression of what's already been won and all organised. Uh, and you can see that most clearly, you can't really see in Australia because trade unions are so weak, but if you had strong trade unions, a trade union demonstration represents everyone who's in that union, whether they're on that demonstration or not. It's a demonstration of organised power. Um, and most demonstrations in Australia aren't that. They can play a sort of role in reaching out. But I guess I would wonder about thoughts on the advantages of this over, I guess, other ways that a lot of people on the left do actually go go about it. Yeah, well, I, like in terms of rallies, I think you named it of like, especially with the climate strikes, it's not tied to a, an organised base in society in any way. Um, it was like kind of an ad hoc of that, for want of a better term, political power, um, which didn't translate into anything else. Um, and I think probably my other like, the other thought that's been floating around for me lately is that the school strikes were very tied to the moralism of young people's future. Um, there, there wasn't, it was approaching the point of tying it in to a criticism of like people's material well-being, but never really communicated it very well. And I think that, you know, putting, putting, yeah, I know that, that felt yucky for me at the end of that, like putting children forward and using them to demonstrate a moral argument of why, you know, we need to do something with the climate crisis was not a good move, I don't, but I think, you know, one of the last school strikes I was at, um, it was the second one, I think, in Brisbane, there was, um, I had a bunch of young people who were involved and who were speaking on the day, ranging in ages from nine to like 17. And I think one of the 10-year-olds came off stage after just like getting this beautiful, very passionate speech and just came off stage burst into tears and was just sobbing for the rest of the day and just like out of pure fear and terror for their future. Um, they were all there of their choice, but I, I don't know. It just felt really bad to use young people to force a moral argument that was never going to win in that way. Um, and I think that that argument could have been won if there was a backing of something else, of bringing people alongside 
um, in a more deep and meaningful way at the same time. Yeah, I'm not sure if I really answered your question, but <laughs> there you go. Oh, sorry. Uh, I feel like what you said is really correct, Mel, about like, these are these are really big these are really big protests, but they're not linked to some sort of organization at the end. So what like what Stuart was saying about like the these union protests were really strong because they represented everyone in the everyone in the union, whether they're at the protests or not. Well, these 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 big street marches aren't really strong because they don't represent everyone who's who's in this organization that like this who kind of vaguely agrees that we should do something about climate change. Um and I think taking I think yeah, but again, like, what what do we do differently to anyone else on on the left? Is like, I think we take seriously that the left in Australia and around a lot of the world has suffered like a, a world historic defeat and basically doesn't exist. Like, it's so there's no point doing a big street march because everyone, you know, everyone knows that that isn't a that street march isn't a symbol of an organized power in in society that that can do something that can threaten that can threaten the interests of the powerful it's it's just a big festival of weakness to to show that they care about something and that this is the only thing that they can do about it is that they can stand in a in a room with a bunch of other people who also care about it and go nowhere and do nothing from it except you know even if it even if the room is 30,000 people in the street like it it's not connected to an organization and i think taking seriously that that if we are ever going to build meaningful power in Australian society, that there is a huge amount of work to be done to actually build an organisation. It doesn't even really matter what people do. Like, I think door knocking is really good because because people seem to really like it and because it changes how they think about society. But if, yeah, like, it, it doesn't matter. Like, what we need is is to build an organisation which is actually capable of getting people regularly to go and do an activity again and again and again and grow the amount of people who are doing that activity again and again and again and grow the organisation's capacity to do that activity or any other activity again and again and again so that we can actually, you know, then have have this like in, institutional capacity to to get a bunch of people to go and do a task and we just don't have that in australia we we don't have it anywhere and and that's what we need to do is to to actually get to the point that a street march is symbolizing some sort of like some sort of institutional set of institutions that are capable of getting a bunch of people to go and do a thing rather than symbolizing you know a, a bunch of people who amorphously and in an atomized way agree with each other about some of the problems in society yeah totally Declan and I think um the two things that um I feel like we've touched on that I feel like um are definitely linked um is as you say Declan like this idea of actually building capacity and building um you know power um which you know from you know Mel's description it sounds like um or well you know any any of these rallies really I mean as they're taking form in um, Australia at the moment, um, people are coming, um, you know, marching for an hour or two, um, you know, holding up their signs and then they're going home and that's kind of it. And so that that capacity building isn't happening there. Um, and it also sounds like what what isn't happening or perhaps didn't happen as much as it could have with um, the school strikes was um, that analysis of power. So like who holds power and how are we going to take it away? Because, um, you know, the, um, in contrast, like the um, union demonstrations, um, that's all um, backed by um, the, I guess, sort of no, known factor of the fact that, you know, the power that the workers have is the ability to withhold their labour. And, you know, on the other hand, you know, with an electoral campaign, the power comes from, you know, being able to, you know, win win votes and, and win seats um, and um, assume power in that way. Whereas, you know, at the moment with the rallies that we've seen in the last few years or 
you know, um, probably even less so now, um, but, you know, smaller rallies that we're seeing at the moment, um, that analysis of power isn't there. Like what um, does the, you know, rally or demo or protest or whatever, how does that translate into power? <laughs> um, or, or is it just asking the government to, to do something, whether by, you know, asking them nicely or, you know, shouting through a megaphone? Okay, that is the end of part one of the chat that I had with Eva, Mel and Declan from the, the Brisbane Greens. Thank them very much for their time. Part two of this chat will be out in about a week or so. It will pick up pretty much where this one left off, uh, not just looking at door knocking, but also its limits and some of the other types of campaigning that they do, some of the mutual aid type work that they have been doing, free breakfasts, a lot of the flood relief and some of the different types of community campaigning and a lot of the different challenges, I guess, that their project is facing uh, with more and more success. Uh, so I hope that you will come back and listen to part two because I certainly enjoyed the entire chat an enormous amount. I want to give a big thank you and shout out to Marlena who's been doing a lot of the editing of these, these podcasts. Uh, this one, I think, probably involved a lot more work. Uh, there's a few issues with the internet and, and audio. So a big thank you to Marlena and also Declan, who's been helping with the editing and uploading of these as well. So please come back in a week and listen to the rest of the chat. I strongly recommend it. See ya.